Amen. Okay. I think it's time for the sermon. Can't remember <laughs> we've got to do anything else. So um, I'm going to ask you to open up your, your Bibles. Uh, there are two passages of scripture that we're focusing on today. Uh, we are continuing our series on church. We have a series called Church Unpacked, and that's where, we're, uh, that's where we are today. We're looking at the church. The two passages that we're going to be studying today are found in Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 19 to 22, so you can put a marker in there. And then we're also going to be jumping over to 1 Peter 2, verses 4 to 6, which is right near the back of your Bible. It's one of those books in your Bible that when you're flicking through, you always miss. Do you know one of the books that I can never seem to find when I'm flicking through my paper Bible is Hebrews, but it's quite big. But for some reason, it must be the way my Bible's bound. It just always flicks past it. But 1 Peter 2, 4 to 6, those are the two passages for today. Let's pray, shall we, as we come to God's word. Father, we thank you that today we are going to hear about your work in the earth. We're going to hear about the wonderful things that you are doing in your church. We're going to learn something about the nature of church and about our nature as Christians and so, Lord, we pray as we come to this part of the service, this worship service, that we would hear these words as your words, not as the words of a man, not as my opinions, uh, but as the word of God. And as that word goes forward, Lord God, we pray that it would transform us from the inside out. We pray that we would be made more like Jesus because of what we hear today. We pray this in the mighty name of the Lord. Amen. So I'm going to read out Ephesians 2, 19 to 22 for you, and then 1 Peter 2, 4, 6. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Let's say household of God. Household of God. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple. Let's say holy temple. I'm keeping you awake. Holy temple in the Lord. In him you are also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. And then 1 Peter 2 verses 4 to 6. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Christ Jesus. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. This is the word of the Lord. Scripture reveals to us a God who is not distant, who is not aloof, but a God who is with his people. And that's why I felt like all of the prophetic words we've had today from Eddie, from Ruth, from Darren have all tied in perfectly with the word today, which is just one of those amazing things about God, isn't it? He manages to weave all of these things together. Ruth's word earlier is about dwelling. And this is the God who is revealed in scripture. It's a God who loves to dwell with his people. He's a God who is relational, a God who is close, a God who is intimate with his people. And that's been the case from the very beginning, hasn't it? Right at the beginning of our Bibles, we learn about God walking with Adam and Eve in the garden. That was the initial relationship that God had with us, mankind, was that he walked with us in fellowship, in the cool of the day. That's Genesis 3.8. We know that 
when his people came out of the land of Egypt. That far from being distant and removed from the Israelites, God was with his people in the wilderness, wasn't he? And it was physical in manifestation. There was a pillar of cloud by day and fire by night over the tabernacle. So God was, again, with his people. With his people, guiding them, leading them through the wilderness. And of course we know that when the first temple was built, we've read the story in Second Chronicles 7 and in First Kings 8. Have you read the story about all the sacrifices that Solomon offered in that first temple? And the Ark of the Covenant was brought in. And what happened? Do we remember what happened there in the first temple when all those sacrifices were offered? The glory of God fell, didn't it? The glory of God fell in that place. And it was so intense that the priests couldn't even stand to minister. And so again, we have God being present, dwelling with his people. We read in Second Chronicles 7, as soon as Solomon finished his prayer, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices and the glory of Yahweh filled the temple. The glory of God filled the temple. And the priests could not enter the house of the Lord because the glory of the Lord filled the Lord's house. You know what the Hebrew word for glory is? Kavod, right? And it means weighty. It can also mean weighty presence. The presence of the Lord was such that the priests couldn't even stand to minister in it. When all the people of Israel saw the fire come down and the glory of the Lord on the temple, they bowed down with their faces to the ground on the pavement and worshipped and gave thanks to the Lord. For he is good and his steadfast love endures forever. And then, in the days of Christ, God comes to earth in the person of Jesus. Again, he comes to dwell with his people. There's that very famous verse in John, John 1.14. It says, the word, who is who? Who is the word? Who's the logos? It's Christ. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. In, in the message, which I'm not very fond of, but it says it, he tabernacled, and that's correct. The Greek word there for dwelling is that he pitched his tent amongst us. He pitched his tent with us. We, and it says, we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father full of grace and truth. Your God is a God who makes his home with you. He makes his home with his people. He dwells with us. He's not distant and I think sometimes it's a very simple truth, isn't it? But we forget this. And we begin to treat God as if he were distant. As if he were some kind of like sky daddy, as the atheists call him. He's up there somewhere and we have to try and get his attention. Um, and that's difficult to do because he's very far away and he doesn't really understand me or what's going on in my life or the culture that we live in. He couldn't really understand those things. But Actually, the Bible teaches the very opposite. It teaches a God who is imminent. He's actually with us right now. He's a God who dwells with his people. And so he is massively familiar with your life. He's more familiar with your life than you are. He knows you better than you know yourself. He knows your desires. He knows your challenges. He knows your dreams. He knows your heart better than you know them. That's the God that we worship in Scripture. And so God knows exactly the pressures that you're under. He knows exactly what you need before you ask him. Psalm 139 is one of my absolute favorite psalms. It was my dad's favorite psalm as well. I remember growing up. And it's a psalm not just about God's love and closeness, but it's also about just his godness and how awesome he is, how sovereign he is, uh, how incredible he is. This is the God we worship, amen? He is a God who knows us. He is a God who is with us. He's Emmanuel. And of course, right through the scriptures, right through up until when Jesus comes, all we're seeing is a God who dwells with his people, whether that be in the garden, whether that be above the tabernacle, the pillar of cloud and fire, or whether that's, um, whether that's in the temple or whether that's in Christ. We've got this, this theme running right through scripture of God coming to be with his people. And of course, 
It's true, isn't it, that God doesn't change. He doesn't change. This is God the same yesterday, today, and forever. James 1.17 says, Every good gift, every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. He doesn't change. And so we should expect, therefore, that God should be dwelling with his people on earth today as well as in the past, correct? Because he's the same God. When Christ left the earth and went to be with his Father in heaven, he made sure that his church, the apostles uh, at the time, he made sure that they knew he wasn't abandoning them, didn't he? We read about this in John 14 and 15 and 16. There's a conversation happening there and Jesus is over and over and over again saying, don't worry, I will send the Holy Spirit to you. He says in John 14, 16 to 18, I will ask the Father and he will give you a helper to be with you, to be with you. The helper is with you forever. Even the spirit of truth who the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. So far from what the Muslims believe about this passage being somehow about Muhammad, where you get that idea from, I don't know. This is about the spirit of truth, the Holy Spirit who will be with you, who is with you. And you shall never be what? Orphaned. It's paradoxical to say that a Christian can be an orphan because Jesus said they won't be. And so this is why I absolutely repudiate this whole orphan heart or orphan spirit teaching that a Christian can simultaneously be filled with the Holy Spirit and also be a spiritual orphan. That's a lie from the devil. Impossible. Jesus said, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. And many Jews believe that Yahweh's dwelling place, where he dwelt with his people, because it was destroyed in AD 70, they believe God has no dwelling place now. Since the destruction of the temple, which we talked about last week. But Jesus actually prophesied about this, didn't he? Well before the temples destroyed in AD 70 by the Roman armies, which I, I encourage you to read about. This, this is an incredible event. It's an incredible event. It was under siege. The city was under siege for four years. Did you know that? Jerusalem was under siege for four years um, before the temple was destroyed. An incredible historical event. But Jesus prophesied all of this before it actually happened. Do you remember in John 4, Jesus is speaking to a Samaritan woman, isn't he, at the well? And he says to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. This would have been crazy for this woman to hear. She was a Samaritan and they worshipped on a mountain just next to Samaria. I don't know if you know that. They worshipped there. They said, this is where we're supposed to worship. Um, and she's questioning Jesus, thinking that Jesus is going to defend temple worship. But Jesus says, no, not on your mountain or in Jerusalem and at this moment her head is blown she's thinking what and he says you worship what you do not know we worship what we know for salvation is of the Jews but the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers did you catch that Jesus says that there are true worshipers if there are true worshipers what does that mean there are also false worshipers okay the true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit. Those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. So not at Jerusalem. Not at Jerusalem. This would have been absolutely mind-blowing for anybody to hear. And this coming from a Jew, let alone not just a Jew, but also the Messiah you're not going to be worshipping in the temple anymore. There's not going to be this building that you need to go to to worship God. Now, we're not Jews, most of us, are we here? Maybe some Jews, I don't know, but most of you will not have been raised as Jews. And so the idea of the temple in your thinking is a bit of an unusual one. We're all raised in a place where we 
We don't see church like a temple. But in the time of the Jews, in the Old Testament, the temple was the very place, the geographical location where God's manifest presence dwelt. It was the place of the glory of God. Have you read the Psalms? Read Psalm 84, Psalm 100, Psalm 63. These Psalms where, don't worry about the noise, it's all good. It's great. (laughs) We have kids in the church, praise God. (laughs) But these Psalms are all David longing to be in the place of the temple. It's him crying out to be in that place where God's presence touches the earth. You know, my soul cries out to be in that place of God's dwelling. the, The temple wasn't just a building to the Jews. It was the place where heaven met earth. It was the place where they came to encounter the presence of God. It was also the only place where he was to be worshipped. You, you couldn't, like, you know now, we, we can go to any number of churches in this nation and we can worship the same God and there's no problem, is there? Okay, and we'll get into why that is. But if you tried to do that in Israel, yeah, yeah, we, we're not going to worship in the temple this year. It's a 200 mile round trip. Uh, we've actually set up our own little mini temple. Um, up on our favorite hill just over there. We're going to go worship there. Guess what? You'd be in big trouble. You would be in big trouble because the temple was the place where you worshiped. You went up there once, maybe more, a year, and that's where you offered your sacrifices. That's where you gathered to worship. That's where the priests offered the sacrifices. And to do otherwise, to set up your own place of worship, was idolatry. It was a serious, serious sin that could have you cut off from the house of Israel. So it's very, very, very important. The temple was the dwelling place of God. And it was the place, the only place where you worshipped him. But Jesus said an hour was coming when people would worship God outside of this temple. And that it wouldn't be counted as idolatry. It wouldn't be seen as sinful or wrong, but it it would be true spiritual worship. So how on earth could that be the case? How could the Son of God be telling us that this place, the temple, the place where God said his name would dwell forever, was no longer going to be the place where he would be worshipped? In 1 Corinthians 6, sorry, 1 Corinthians 3, 16 and 17, we get the answer to this. Because we see that God has set up a new dwelling place, a new temple. It says this, do you not know that you are God's temple? And he's talking to individuals here. You are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you. If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him for God's temple is holy and you are that temple. Say, I am a temple of God. Because what scripture teaches, what the New Testament teaches is that a Christian, somebody who follows Jesus, isn't just somebody who does Christian-y things. A Christian isn't just someone who tries to be a good person. You know, that's kind of the idea that most people have about what a Christian is. It's somebody who's trying to be a good person. But the Bible says, no, that's not it. A Christian isn't just someone who's trying to do a good job, trying to be a more moral person. The Bible says a Christian isn't just somebody who's nice. You know, we get this funny idea, don't we, as well, that being a Christian's about just being a nice person. And listen, if, you, <laughs> if you're a jerk, you're a moron, and you're not fun to hang around with, it, it might be something you need to look at. It might be a kind of warning light that maybe something's not right on the inside. 
But we're getting it wrong if we think that to be a Christian is just to be a nice guy. You know, you're not ever allowed to say something that might hurt somebody's feelings. Have you ever read the Old Testament? You read the prophets before? Have you read Jesus? Have you read Paul? You whitewashed wall. These weren't always nice guys. They were spirit-filled people. They were Holy Spirit people. They were loving people. But they were supernatural people. So a Christian is someone who is indwelt by the Holy Spirit. That's what a Christian is. That's a definition of a Christian that the Bible tells us. Is that a Christian is somebody who is radically different on the inside. Something has changed. Something foundational about who you are is different. Because you have been born again. And you have been filled with the Holy Spirit. The Christian is a walking temple of God. A Christian is a temple of God. Do you believe that you are the dwelling place of the Holy Spirit? Because that's what the Bible says you are if you are a Christian. You are a temple of God, both individually and corporately is how the Bible speaks about us. We are walking temples. And the church, therefore, when those walking temples gather together, we will see as we exegete these scriptures, is the temple of God. You know, these are very simple truths. They're very simple truths, but I think they're transformational. They're transformational because when we connect the Old Testament image of the temple of God and the New Testament image of God, sorry, temple of God, we, we should be shaking in our boots, frankly. We should be amazed, we should be awestruck that the Bible calls us a temple of God and that the Bible calls this the temple of God. If a Jew was to hear that, they'd be like, What? You're talking about the place where the manifest presence of God dwells? You're talking about the place where the glory of Yahweh falls? You're talking about the place where there are continual sacrifices to God? And you're saying that's in you? That's what the Bible says. A Christian is a temple of God. If you're a Christian today, think of this. What the Bible says is that you are spirit-filled. That your body is, in a sense, a dwelling place of the Holy Spirit. And therefore, you are kind of like a meeting place of heaven and earth. You are the place where God dwells on the earth. That's nuts to me. You're the place where the presence of God is manifest. Did you know that the priests who entered into the temple once a year needed bells on the bottom of their robes? Do you know why that was? So if the bells stopped ringing, his fellow priests knew he'd died in the presence of God and they needed to drag him out. You know, we need to start thinking about the presence of God with more reverence. We need to start thinking about ourselves and the dwelling place of God in our lives with more seriousness. Has Yahweh changed? Has his presence changed? I don't think so. He's chosen to dwell with his people. He's chosen to dwell with them by his spirit internally do you know what happened in the Old Testament when the Jews would begin to bring idolatrous practices into the temple bad things would happen (laughs) bad stuff would happen when they began to mix 
pagan practices with the worship of a true God in the temple. In fact, the temple was destroyed twice. Solomon's temple was destroyed, completely flattened by the Babylonians. And of course, they were taken off into exile. And then again in AD 70, the temple's flattened again. Why? Because they began to bring idolatrous worship into the temple of God. And God cursed it. And now we can begin to see how serious it is that we don't begin to try and mold ourselves into the image of the world. We don't begin to try and mix our worship of God with what the world says we ought to worship. It's called syncretism. It's when you mix two religious practices together. When we try and mix wokeism, political activism with the gospel. We've got to be very careful when we try and mix our carnal desires. Whatever they might be, each of you has your own sin that easily besets. But when we begin to make an idol out of our desires and say that thing is something that I just need to have. It's something that I just must give my all to get, whether it's money, fame, whatever. The minute we begin to do that, what we're doing is we are bringing idols into the temple of God, which is always supposed to be holy. It's a holy place. So you are individually temples of God, but, but what's more is, in the same, sorry, it, written to the same church, 2 Corinthians 6.16, says, what agreement has the temple of God with idols? What agreement has the temple of God had with idols? It's exactly what Darren was talking about earlier. For we are the temple of the living God. And he's now talking about we. We are the temple of the living God. Hope City Church is an expression of the temple of God. It's part of his visible temple on the earth. He says, we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. So not just is it about you being individually a temple of God, but it's when we come together as the ecclesia, as the gathered people of God, we are God's dwelling place on the earth. This is where the presence of God is manifest and this is where his glory is. This is where his glory falls. It might not always feel like that but that's what the bible says these things are spiritually received aren't they so i don't understand when people say well, that's, the church is boring yeah i would come to church but listen super sunday's on at half two and I, it's just difficult for me the church is the temple of god the church is where his presence is manifest this is where he comes to dwell with his people when we gather. First Peter 2 says, as you come to him, that is come to Christ, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves like living stones are built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood. Did you see how we are matched to Christ there? It says there, doesn't it, that he's a living stone? And then it says you like a living stone. It says he was rejected by men, so you will be rejected by men. It says he was chosen by God, and so you are chosen by God. You see the parallels here between Christ and between you? We're connected to him because of his new life. His life is in us. He's a living stone. And that's the same of us, isn't it? The same is true of a Christian. Paul says in Ephesians 2, and you were what in your trespasses and sins? You were struggling? You were broken? No, you were dead. <laughs> you were dead in your trespasses and sins. But God, that's my favorite part of that chapter. But God he did what? He made us alive, didn't he? He made us alive. And so we're living stones in this temple. 
You are a living stone in God's temple. You're being built together. You were dead, but now you're alive. You have been rejected by the world because of your following of Christ. How many of you have experienced a level of rejection by the world? You all will have done, on some level or not. In some countries, it looks a lot more severe than it does, it does here, doesn't it? Of course, we want to remember to pray for the persecuted church uh, who really do endure a, a tough time of it uh, in their rejection from the world. But you and I, maybe it means that some people don't add us on social media. Um, maybe some people just struggle to like you because of your following of Jesus. But we are rejected by the world because of our acceptance of Christ. But what's encouraging is it says, just as Christ is chosen by God, so you were chosen by God to be a living stone in his temple. If you don't believe me, it's in Ephesians 1 verses 4 and 6. Even as he chose us in him, that is in Christ. So he chose you in Christ when? When he saw your faith? Oh, it says before the foundation of the world. Well, that's interesting. That we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined, there's that word again, sorry everyone. He predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. To the praise of his glorious grace with which he's blessed us in the beloved. And we're being built up. We were chosen and we're being built up into a spiritual house. So churches. The temple of God, church is a structure. And guess what? You're the building materials. You're the blocks. You're the building blocks that God is using. And what's interesting here is in that verse, do you notice it didn't say, and you, the church, are building yourself up into a mighty structure. It's not active. It's a passive verb. You know what a passive verb is? I never learned this in English. For some reason, in schools in the 80s and 90s, they just didn't bother to teach us any rules of English at all. Any other 80s and 90s kids in here? When we got into university, they were like, what's a pronoun? You're like, a what now? <laughs> what's, a, what's an adverb? Literally no clue. Um, I could tell you about um, Jojo bumped his toe on the way to Mexico, um, and I could tell you some stories of Enid Blyton, but I couldn't tell you for the life of me what an adverb is. And so I didn't learn any of this stuff until I... I got to learning Greek and Hebrew. And my Hebrew teacher, who's 10 years younger than me, began to teach me about things about like adverbs and pronouns. It's amazing. So anyway, a passive verb is a verb where we're not getting to know who's doing the action. See that? Being built together. But who's doing the building? Who's doing the building of the church? The pastors? God. God. It's what's known as a divine passive. In the New Testament, in the Old Testament, often when we, when we say being built together or being something, we're supposed to infer that it's God. When it's something to do with the church, we infer that it's God. And it's God who's building us together. God is building us together. And God builds his church. Jesus says, doesn't he, in Matthew 16, 18, Peter is being asked a question. Who do you say that I am? Jesus turns to Peter. Who do you say that I am? You imagine being asked that question by the Son of God, being put on the spot in front of everyone. Who do you say that I am? And he says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus says, and I tell you, you are Peter, or Petros in the Greek. And on this Petra, rock, I will build my church. Did you catch that? And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. It's Jesus Christ who builds the church. It's not Pastor Graham. It's not Pastor so-and-so. It's actually Christ that puts all the blocks together in the right place. And I'm so grateful for that. Because I would not be a great architect. <laughs> so it's Christ that builds his church. It's him who hewed you out of the quarry of this earth. It's him who has shaped you and is shaping you, a living stone, to be fit together with, guess what? With other believers. With other believers in the context of church. 
And this structure is being built together, not by human hands, but by the almighty hand of God. That's why I know, no matter how bad things look in the church in this nation, and it looks quite dark at times, doesn't it? The state of the church. And we ought to be praying. But I know that because this church, locally, and the church more broadly, has a divine architect and a divine builder, I know ultimately it's never going to fail. It's never going to fail. Even if this local expression of church crumbles and falls, I know God's purpose will endure. He's the master builder. He's the one that puts his church together. And the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Amen? It's one of the most incredible things, isn't it? That the church has lasted as long as it has. Against all the the hailing and railing of mankind against church. Here we are, 2,000 years later, still going. It's because God's its builder. And Jesus says, on this rock I will build my church. Now, of course, what's he referring to there? There's a few interpretations, aren't there? But I think a good one is that, you know, he is saying to Peter, on this rock of the revelation, that I am Christ. I do think that's true. I think it's true to say that the church of Jesus Christ is built on what Peter revealed there. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Absolutely. Luther said this and I agree with him. But it's also in a sense true, and we shouldn't fear to to land on this interpretation, that in a sense, Peter, along with the other apostles, not just Peter, because he was the Bishop of Rome, there's very little evidence of that, but Peter, along with the other apostles, was a foundation, was a foundation of the church upon which Christ built, and we shouldn't fear to have that inference from that scripture either. We can say that it is true that it is the revelation of Jesus as Christ that the church is built on. But equally, we can also say, not the way the Catholics say it, but we can say yes. Because Ephesians 2 says that the church is built on the foundation of what? The apostles and the prophets. So, okay, Peter, you're part of that foundation. We can agree to that. And we know that, I mean, how many of you have been in the building trade before? Probably Talk to, talk to us a little bit more accurately about this. Yes. How important is a foundation to a building? Rather, rather important, isn't it? I've, I've done a building project before, and the foundation was the most expensive part, the most time-consuming part, and the part that mattered the most. Because the rest of the edifice, doesn't matter how beautiful it is, if it's not built on a solid foundation, it's going to fall, it's going to fail. Structurally, So the foundation's massively important. And though you can't see it, it's below the ground, it's absolutely essential to the foundation, sorry, to the building that you can see, is what's under the ground. And Paul says, you are members of the household of God, built on the foundation. So this building, church, is built on a foundation of the apostles, of the prophets and Christ Jesus being the cornerstone. So don't get this twisted. Jesus is the very foundation of the church. No two ways about that. But it also says that the apostles and the prophets, and I believe this to be the prophets of the the New Testament, that's my reading of it, although there are others that see it as the Old Testament prophets, John Chrysostom and some others, but I believe this to be New Testament prophets. Christian prophets, they are also the foundation of this thing we call church. Christ is spoken of as the chief cornerstone. He's the most important stone in the whole building. It's what holds everything together. Now, this Christ, it's important we understand this this foundational stuff here, okay? Because if we get the wrong foundation... We're not talking about the same building, are we? So the foundation of the church is super important. And Christ is the cornerstone. Which Christ, though? Which Jesus? The Jesus of the Quran? 
It's the Christ which was preached by the apostles and revealed by the prophets. That's the Jesus who is the cornerstone, isn't it? They are the foundation of the church too, these apostles and prophets. Now, this verse in recent times has become quite controversial. It hasn't been controversial for nearly 2,000 years. But now in this day and age, when you say it's founded on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, people go, oh yes, Apostle Bob from up the road and Prophet Karen from, yes, we have our apostle, we have our prophet. Um, so we are built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. Now, I think Paul's eyebrows would have wrinkled at that type of an interpretation. <laughs> so let me explain briefly why that's the case. Because it is taught in some circles that this passage in Ephesians 2 is teaching that you need to have a modern day apostle in order to have a true foundation. So you need to go and seek out Apostle Bob or Apostle Billy and you need to put your tithe in his account. And that makes you an apostolic church. We are an apostolic church, absolutely. We are absolutely called to be apostolic. That's got to be the foundation. But is this talking about modern day apostles or something else? Now, let's just do a quick study here. I'm not going to dive in for too long because it's a big subject. But in the New Testament, the word apostle, apostolos in the Greek, it has quite a wide range of meaning. So it can have a really broad meaning as being sent one. That's literally what it means. And every time in the Greek New Testament you read about somebody being sent somewhere. For example, when the disciples are sent by Jesus into Bethany to go get a donkey, he uses the verb aposteleo, okay? So it appears quite a lot. And on its broad meaning, the noun can just mean sent one. You are somebody who has been sent to do a task, you're an apostolos, you're an apostle, okay? It can also mean missionary. So, for example, Barnabas is called an apostle in the New Testament. Did you know that? So, Barnabas is called an apostle. But he's not listed amongst the 12, is he? His name's not one of the foundations of the city of the New Jerusalem. So, in what sense was he an apostle? Well, another use of that word is as a missionary. So, if you're being sent out by a church to go minister somewhere to go and accomplish a task, you too could be called an apostle. That's another slightly less broad meaning. And then there's a really narrow sense in which the New Testament uses the word apostle, and that's the apostles of Christ. So these are the 12 that Jesus selected to be his apostles, and arguably Paul too, okay? And that's the narrow sense of the word apostle. So you can see, you have to actually do a bit of work sometimes to understand what's actually being meant by that word. It's not super simple to always know. But in this case here, it's the narrow meaning that Paul is talking about. He's talking about the apostles of Christ. He's talking about the 12 plus himself. Since following his imagery of a foundation... What he's saying is you only lay a foundation once, don't you? You lay a foundation, you don't keep laying it, you know, you, you lay it once and it's, it's done. If you know how to build a building, you don't need to keep laying the foundation, it's done once. You don't keep relaying it. And so we know that Paul here is referring to the initial foundation of the church on Christ and the apostles and the prophets. Now we don't always have to relay Christ Every time we plant a church, don't, we don't need a new Jesus. So we don't need new apostles and prophets either because we've already got them. You know, people say, who's your apostle? Are you, are you, are you related to Apostle Timmy? Uh, Prophet Karen? No, my apostles are John. My apostles are Paul. My apostles are Peter. And, and I've got their writings here. This is their authority right here. It's the authority of the actual apostles. Now, on some level, we can say that apostolic ministry continues. It does on some level, because we get the word missionary from the Latin word missionario, which came from the Greek word, guess what, apostolos. So in some senses, we could say apostolic ministry continues today in the form of missionaries. We could say maybe a church planter is doing some form of apostolic ministry. But no one can claim today to be part of the foundation of the church. 
because it's been laid. I don't know how, I don't know how it could be more simple. The foundation's done, guys, so you're not part of it unless you want to believe that God's still laying the foundation of his church 2,000 years later. We also know that when the New Jerusalem comes down, it's going to have the names of those 12 apostles on the foundation of the walls. And so that's what Paul's talking about here. Well, yeah, we're going to just give a quote right here. So there are warnings of false apostles. Now, what's interesting, just to finish up with, is that there's only one instance in, in Scripture where a new apostle is chosen, and that's in Acts chapter 1. So that's when Judas has killed himself, and they're looking to replace him. And so the apostles come together, and in Acts 1, 21 and 22, they gather together and they say, all right, so... Who here among us has just got an awesome vision for the church of God? Who here among us is just just really ripping it up and winning souls for Christ? Okay, no, it's not what happens, unfortunately, for many. They say, so one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out amongst us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day he was taken up from us, one of these men must become a witness with us to his resurrection. So... There was criteria to become one of those initial founding apostles. You couldn't just say, I really sense a call from God that I'm an apostle. You couldn't do that. You needed to be appointed by Christ. You needed to have actually been with Christ in his earthly ministry. Uh, You needed to be a witness to his resurrection if you wanted to be one of those founding apostles. You can't just elect yourself to be one of the founding apostles, okay? Does that make sense? Charles Hodge, who was a biblical commentator in the 1800s, very, very solid on most things. He said, no man, therefore, can just be an apostle unless he was immediately appointed by Christ, unless he'd seen him after his resurrection and had received knowledge of the gospel by immediate revelation, unless he was rendered infallible by the gift of inspiration. These things constituted the office and were essential to its authority. Those without these gifts and qualifications who still claim the office are called false apostles. And I'll just read, you know, this, I'll read a a quote from a continuationist. I'm a spirit guy. I'm not a cessationist. I'm, I'm a guy who believes in the gifts for today, okay? I believe in the work of the Holy Spirit in the church. So I'm going to read a quote from another guy who believes the same as I do. Listen to this. This is from Wayne Grudem, Systematic Theology. It's noteworthy that no major leader in the history of the church, not Athanasius, not Augustine, not Luther, not Calvin, not Wesley, not Whitfield, has taken to himself the title of apostle or let him be self-called an apostle. If any in modern times want to take the title apostle to themselves, they immediately raise the suspicion that they may be motivated by inappropriate pride and desires for self-exaltation along with excessive ambition and a desire for more authority in the church than any one person should rightfully have. I tend to, I tend to agree with him on that point because we're, we're talking about his foundational apostles here. Okay, so we're built on the foundation of the 12 plus Paul, those who were given the authority to put together the canon of scripture. And so we do have an apostolic foundation so long as we are built upon the revelation of the scriptures, okay? I'm not denying that God is still moving powerfully through church planters, through missionaries. If you want to call that ministry apostolic, I don't necessarily have an issue with that. I have an issue with people saying, I'm apostle such and such. I get to govern and lead this church. I am not accountable to anybody uh, because I believe that the New Testament witnesses that church is to be governed by overseers, by elders, by presbyters, whatever Greek word you want to use, and that people who are using that title are often doing so to gain more power for themselves. And I think it's wrong. The foundational apostles are those 12 plus Paul okay that's what we're built upon and a church is apostolic not because it's aligned with some modern day apostle but because it stands on the revelation of the actual apostles okay not the revelations of pastor Joseph Smith prophet Joseph Smith as the Mormons have okay 
another false prophet. You can see, can't you, how when we start to build on faulty foundations, we're no longer building or being part of God's building because he's made one foundation and it's this. And we're only apostolic and we're only built on Christ so long as we're built on this. Okay? Powerful stuff. We're being joined together. Peter and Paul use kind of different images but in some ways similar. They talk about how you and I as individual stones in this temple are actually being fitted together. Built together by God. And what's really interesting is when we look back at the first temple which was built in Jerusalem... Do you know what they say about how the bricks were put together? Do you, ever, you remember that in the Bible? Pardon? They fitly joined together, that's right. But do you remember there's a story about they didn't want to hear the sound of chisels, did they, on the Temple Mount? So what they did was they actually fitted the stones in the quarry, didn't they? They chiseled them out, made them all perfect out in the quarry, and then brought them up to Temple Mount. And I heard a pastor say this, and I thought it was brilliant. He said, the world is the quarry. The world is the quarry, you are the stones, and you are being prepared out in this world by the places you work, in the relationships that you have. God is chiseling you and knocking off the rough edges out in the world in order to fit and prepare you to take your final place in his temple. Isn't that wonderful? How many of you have had some edges knocked off you? How many of you need a bit of healing for the, the edges that have been knocked off you? I know that I do. But we're being prepared, brothers and sisters. So we mustn't look at the world and our difficulties and challenges in the world as random or unnecessary. They are necessary. Though they may be difficult and painful at times, it's the way that God fits us. It's his providence. And that's often how he is actually knocking these hard edges off us and shaping you just right so that you fit together with your other brothers and sisters. Isn't it true that we have better relationships with one another when we can understand one another? You know, it's, it's, it's no secret that I've had my fair share of, of battles with my mental health in the past five years. And I'll tell you what, that has made me a lot better at talking to brothers and sisters who've gone through those troubles as well. And that happened in the world. That's how, part of the way that God has shaped me. And so I just want to encourage you, you know, Weakness, weakness isn't always weakness, like having a weakness, having a challenge, sometimes that can be God knocking some hard edges off you so that you fit better together in this context with your brothers and sisters. And finally, I'm going to finish now because I've gone on a while, but Peter says that we're a priesthood, so that you're not just bricks. You're not just bricks that are just inanimate. It says you're living stones. You're built together into this temple. But also that in the temple of God, in the church, you actually have a role. You're a priest. You're a priest. That's what your job is. What do priests do? What do priests do? They make intercession and they, they offer they offer sacrifices, don't they? They offer sacrifices to God. And priests in the Old Testament are chosen, aren't they? They're set apart uh, from the world and they're purified before they enter the temple. They've got to be purified before they enter. And isn't that just a picture of you? God has purified you. There's no longer any spot or blemish. Jesus dealt with every sin in your life. He's paid for it all at the cross. You've been ultimately purified to enter into that role as priest. Do you see how you couldn't be a priest unless all of your imperfections and sin was dealt with? You wouldn't be fit to serve. And so this is also a picture of the complete righteousness of Jesus Christ and his perfect salvation of you. It's not lacking in any way. How much good news is that? I just love that. Praise God that I don't have to work for my own salvation, but God accomplished it perfectly. And so we are priests and Jesus is our great high priest who's offered once for all the sacrifice of his own body. Hebrews 10, 10 to 14 says, and by that will we have been sanctified, have been sanctified, interesting there, through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. 
once for all. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. So brothers and sisters, as priests, we don't need to re-offer the same sacrifice that Jesus offered once for all. That's why you don't need the mass, which is a representation of the same sacrifice Jesus offered. Because the Bible says he did it once and once is good enough. You don't present his sacrifice, you're called to present other sacrifices. But what sacrifices? Anybody got any ideas? Excellent praise. Hebrews 13, 15. Through him, you see that? Through Christ, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. How many of you recognize that sometimes praise is a sacrifice? (laughs) Yeah. You don't always feel like worshiping. I know Mike came in today. He's had a stinker of a cold for three days. It maybe would have been difficult for him to stand up there today. I know he was supping on a caffeine-free Coke beforehand. Praise is often a sacrifice. We are called as priests to render a sacrifice of praise. We don't wait till we feel ready. We don't feel, wait till we got that burning in the bosom. We render a sacrifice of praise to God. Uh, what's another sacrifice that we're called to offer as priests? Anybody guess? Romans 12? Romans 12, 1. It says, I appeal to you there, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. So you're called as a priest to offer your whole self, your body, your mind, your soul to him as worship. And so our bodies should not be involved in lifestyle sin. They shouldn't be used to fulfill our own desires but they should be offered up to God as a living sacrifice each day, I believe. I believe that's something we have to commit to each day. And we always need to be just looking to God and saying, Lord, help me to give this sacrifice. Help me to purge out any areas of my life where I may be not giving you everything, where I'm actually offering part of me to something I shouldn't be. We're called to offer the whole thing. So I want to open up some ministry time. I'm going to ask Mike to come back up. I'm going to open some ministry time up because I want for you to know that you are a living stone today. I want you to know that you yourself are the temple of God. And I want you to think for a moment about that. I want you to take time to recognize how God has filled you with his Holy Spirit, how you are a walking temple. You are the place where his spirit dwells. Secondly, I want you to think about maybe how you need to think about some of the habits that you're allowing in your life might not be helping with that situation. Maybe there are some things you need to re-offer up to God today and say, Lord, I know that's not right for me to keep doing and I need to say sorry. I need to get right with you. Each of us sometimes trips up, don't we, into sin and we need to just question today, Lord, is there something you're calling me to let go of today? Some sin, some habit I've tripped up into. Next, I want for us to remember that we are important. We are absolutely essential to the temple of God. We're a living stone. We're being built together. That you here are a living stone. And when you're not present, a block's missing from the building. I want for us to think a little bit about our attitude towards the local church today. Okay? And I I don't want to hammer this too hard, but, you know, some of you are away more than you're here. And that needs to change. You're a living stone being built into a temple of God. We need you. We need you to be here and to be committed, not just to believing, but to actually playing a role in the temple of God here in this location. Thirdly, I want for us to come today, and I just want for us to take time in worship just now to offer God a sacrifice of praise and to consider how he might want us to live more abandoned to praise during the week, to to look at it like that. It's an offering of worship. It isn't going to always feel great. And maybe to not wait until we feel like giving it, but praise him from the place of pain. Praise him from the place of challenge. Give him praise when it's difficult. Just like that image in Kings.
it was when Solomon offered all those sacrifices. Cost him so much, well, cost him so much money. You know, David said as well, as I won't give a sacrifice that hasn't cost me anything. Let's have that same mind in us. Let's praise him from pain. Let's give him a sacrifice of praise. Let's give him an offering that costs us. If you'd like prayer for anything, um, I'm going to be over there ready to pray for you. I'm just going to ask Mike to lead us in a song as we finish up. Why don't we stand?